Saturday? What day is it today? Wednesday. Welcome to Film Fight Club. I'm Glenn Falcon from Falcon Screen, and we are joined by Sydney filmmaker Chris Evans. Hey, guys. And freelance writer and critic Farad Nehru. We are really in the endgame now. We are indeed. <laughs> so you, you may notice we sound a little different, uh, dissonant, uh, separate than we usually do. And that's because we're not recording in studio as we usually want to do or in the bowels of the state theaters we sometimes during sydney film festival but we we're recording from the yeah comfort of our own homes we're all yeah. in different parts of sydney we are all practicing the advice that has been uh widely shared and yeah this is this is a very different film fight club to any we've ever done the, where yes, we, we're, we're, we're taking it as we go introverts well, unite in our own homes that's that's right the film industry is in very uncertain times right now so uh, you know, the, why not make a strange, weird, new episode of Film Fight Club? I've got cold symptoms at the moment. There's no way I can leave home in this environment. But the thing is, isn't this the most hopeful thing that we've done? Despite the world coming to an end, we're still charging on with a new episode of Film Fight Club. Look at the lens we go it's to what, give you new content. It's what the world is really asking for right now. <laughs> A new episode of Film Fight Club, and we're offering hope in this trouble time. <laughs> it, 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 it's, it's nice to keep like really enjoying yeah. it, and I, I like, we're, we're, yeah, we're doing, it, it's good, I, I, it is genuinely nice to see you guys, literally, we can see each other, and we really can't see us, but we like to think of it as a big club, so we're glad you're joining us for this, whether you're listening on Wednesday night or on the podcast, we're going to keep releasing podcast episodes, maybe a few more than regular regular times, but yeah, we're doing a little things a little differently than thanks a little bit. So there'll be some streaming coverage. We'll be doing updates on what is happening in the film and festival industry. Oh, and what is happening in the film festival industry? <laughs> so <laughs> a lot since I, I listened to our last coverage. Uh, if you're listening to this on the radio, to note this is going to we're recording this on Tuesday night. So there may have been major developments since that time. But for the moment, we promised last week that we'll be reviewing reviewing a quiet place too. We were supposed to do that last night. The screening for that was cancelled, as was the pre-screening for Milan. Fast and Furious Nine has been delayed. A well, lot of major delayed. film releases have been delayed. That is the only um, good that news that's come out of that. The, the delay of Fast Nine. I'm so I was super excited for uh, Fast Nine, and I'm so sad that it's only going to come out in April. But we will we will review it down the track. Will it though? Will it? Whatever, if, if this uh, is the uh, end game, will, I don't think that it'll come out in April. It'll never come out. You know, it's no time to die. It's a no, it's well, a I'm living movie. for Fast and Furious out. 9 for us. It'll come out. And that's all the stuff that's been delayed production by Netflix, Disney. A lot of local production has been suspended, understandably. A lot of uh, American television production. Well, We're... yeah. Well, it, it's interesting how this comes on all fronts. We've got cinemas closed and movies not being released, no major releases for the next couple of months at least. The movies that are scheduled for release in June, uh, the, the big summer blockbusters haven't released their haven't moved their release dates yet. Uh, we'll see how long this quarantine goes. They're, they're, today, they're talking about in America, this, these sort of uh, lockdown measures potentially being in place until July. So maybe they will blink, but we'll see. We'll, we'll um, see. Uh, we're seeing but, with local... 
local cinemas. Um, certainly many are remaining open, but they're practicing social distancing measures. They're having few capacity at screenings. Uh, they're having people sit, uh, not in adjacent seats, but have seats between them, yeah. i.e. 1.5 meters. Uh, many are notifying patrons only by email or via the social media of what they are doing in terms of cleanliness and hygiene. And this goes for a lot of places, not just in the arts industry, but in the broader industry. And while we are here to talk about movies and film festivals and all that. Um, there is a, obviously a much wider impact on different industries, which we far see ancillary right. to the festival. So it's, it's ancillary to movies and yeah, far it's, beyond. It's it's far-reaching ramifications for the entire world, but we're a film-focused show, so... Yeah, we're film critics, so yeah. there's plenty of... Yeah, so we've got to be selfish. We're going to talk about movies, guys, okay? This is what yeah. affects us because this is what's real. Everything right. else is fake. <laughs> Everything else can That's be right. made. Uh, Except movies, requires <laughs> real blood, tears, and hard work. Get on it. But anyway, um, yes, film film critics are the best, most selfless people in the universe. And uh, but yeah, as I was saying, this is a we used to sitting at home for a long time at at any that's right, that's stretch. Right. So. No, actually, but, I've been I've been getting is... messages actually from people, my friends. You're like, because this is the first time because of all the social distancing and isolation that suddenly people are binging and watching movies at home. And they're like, is this what you do as a film critic? Like, is this your life? And I'm like, yes and no. I don't know how to explain it to people. I'm like, oh my God, this is wonderful. Well, on that I note of binging, on that note of binging, we're actually going to give you some suggestions of things to watch at home because at long last later in this episode, we're going to be delivering our 2019 top 10s and our it's collective actually- Film Fight Club top 10. It's actually a tradition for us to do it in the subsequent year. So we've had some time to think and seen everything out in that year. So we're continuing in that and we will be doing our top tens later in the program. Um, and I'm keen for it because we actually haven't discussed each other's top tens. We don't know what's in each other's programs. That's true. That's true. Um, it's been a real to, secret. Yeah. Going back to our coronavirus coverage, when I was saying before, this is hitting on all fronts. It's not just the delayed... Uh, films being released now. It's also that almost all film production that's happening at the moment has been suspended. Netflix have suspended all production. Uh, The Avatar sequels have suspended production. Disney have suspended production on everything. So um, will there, you know, how far reaching is this going to be? Is this going to be like the year that film forgot? Um, (laughs) What films, what limited number of films will be eligible for awards contention in the coming year? Will the number of the releases have to be um, put in a much smaller window? I.e., you wouldn't have one major temporal release in a week. You'd have several by the time that people more regularly will be attending cinemas. Or in another, from another dimension of this, we we saw just in the past couple of days, Universal announced that the home release window for The Invisible Man and a couple of films is being dramatically shortened. Suddenly, the film which was in cinemas, you can watch it at home. And subsequent to this um, situation evolving and changing and people um, relaxing social distancing measures, will this window go back to what it was? Or will we see a situation where people are more reliant on home entertainment? We don't know. That's true. There could be a change in the normal forever. You'd never know that this... I mean, I'm making big speculation here, but you don't know that the cinemas are going to recover. Are we suggesting that Netflix is going to win all the awards this year? Is this what's going to happen? they might, but it's the the thing is the Oscar bait that's gone into production now. A lot of the time, it, it starts shooting around February, March, and is done by the end of the year um, because it requires a less long production schedule than a big superhero blockbuster, for example. Right? Um, a lot of those movies are just suspending production. So, will they be able to run an Oscars, or is it going to have like the Invisible Man 
and Mulan get nominated. You know, um, if, if Khan still going ahead, Khan should be cancelled. Well, oh, no, no, no. Hold on. Hold on. At the moment, Khan is going ahead. That, I, I wanted to said, talk about this. Yeah. It, the, the Khan situation is just so hilarious. It's been obvious that the festival can't happen for ages, but they're steadfastly refusing to cancel it because they want to hold their press conference. Um, but with the, the social isolation measures that are about to be rolled over in France, they probably won't even be able to hold the press conference unless it's a press conference via streaming. On this, I, as a, with regards to French cinemas, which are steadfast, I mean, which are steadfastly remaining open, I do believe cinemas uh, will recover from this. Certainly there's a downturn in this period. I believe people will continue to go to the movies. I believe at least for the time being that people will look to home entertainment and streaming, even if companies like Netflix are suspending production. The other situation you can see is with the lack, if Khan doesn't go ahead and if other major festivals that are major distribution markets and premieres for these films don't happen, a lot of the studios will look to release films where they can get an audience in the immediate term on streaming. So there may be a windfall for Stan, uh, Disney, Netflix. It and could be good. To answer for... your question, yes, this we could see all Netflix release a lot of Netflix releases feature prominently at the Academy Awards next year for sure. We could see a lot of films, um, say independent English language films that might have screened at Cannes, Toronto, etc., just getting straight up for streaming. Would would they think about just cancelling the Academy Awards for next year? Is that a possibility? I think it might happen. There's no, I think it's... There's you no never, we never know. Well, no one's cancelling events several months or festivals several months out at the moment. And certainly has gone ahead has planned. I know Vivid, which was scheduled for May 22nd, is cancelled. But uh, major and uh, there's a few festivals which I'll go into which have continued to well they've scheduled film festivals locally that have cancelled events in the coming weeks and month that are continuing with programs into the coming year. Certainly other major festivals and events, while the City Writers Festival cancelled this week, yeah, uh, very sadly, are um, things scheduled for either going on because we don't know how this is going to evolve. And no, we, we don't. I think everyone's waiting and seeing. An interesting sign of the times. Um, I, I before we started this, I checked in cinemas coming soon because I was curious what was still scheduled, and they're packing out there coming soon with movies that you can stream that Dendi released as a film distributor. It's just stay at home, guys. You can watch the Florida Project and Passion of the Christ. <laughs> yeah, well, and um, a lot of the bigger cinemas with a major capacity. They even more so. I mean, a lot of a lot of the smaller cinemas have cinemas where it's thirty to hundred seats, but the other major, the larger ones, have just said, "Nope, sorry, we've got to absolutely cut screenings." I'm not sure what they're doing over at events. They're also, Broadway, but yeah, I think they're also Andy. looking at only filling up, running. only filling up about fifty percent of the capacity. So I think that's yeah, the one measure that they're looking at. Out. Yeah, or less, or less, essentially. Um, Palace. Um, I really wonder. I'm hearing bad reports about attendance for the French Film Festival right now. That's just got to be written off as a loss. Yeah, why? That's why meant to go until mid-April? Why are they still going ahead with that? I thought they they should have postponed it because their lineup has always been really good every year. But no one well, will go. Well, the whole, the whole I, the the advice at the, the, the advice at the moment is not adverse to gatherings of that nature. And so they're continuing on, as many businesses are. Um, certainly many aren't. Um, I took a tally today of the uh, festivals that have postponed events entirely. Certainly Gold Coast, the Wayala Film Festival, Banala Shorts, Geelong Pride have all, film festival have either been postponed or cancelled, as is the Melbourne International Youth Festival, which has been postponed, the Cradle Mountain Film Festival. 
Underground Cinema's been postponed till June, July. Um, Caloundra, um, I know we talked about Honeyland last week. They had a screening uh, scheduled for the 31st of May of March, but then they moved it up to tomorrow night because in their words, they wanted to make sure you don't miss it. They love this film. Um, and, and it's affecting um, small industries, small groups, um, small festivals all over the country. We're seeing it. Um, but on a more positive side, something that came up in the past day, something we can attend, uh, we had Felix Hubble on from Static Vision a couple of weeks ago, and they're planning a live streaming event, which anyone can join from anywhere in the country or anywhere on the 27th of March, on the Friday night from 6 p.m. to 12 a.m. And that's a festival to think people could still be involved and still interact with. So I'll be participating in that. And I'm sure we'll see a lot of festivals. I know a lot of industries and groups are moving seminars online. And I'm sure we're going to see film festivals adapt and add, or even cinemas, and add films not just to streaming, but to live interactive platforms where you can be a part of it. What is the name of that festival again? I'm just checking that now. Uh, lockdown? Vision. Is it Lockdown? Lockdown. Lockdown, oh, that's yes. right. Yeah. It's such a such a great idea. Um, so please support our friends at Static Vision when they go with this initiative. By the way, on the on the subject of um, going back a bit to films shoots getting cancelled, did you hear Paul Schrader's response to the card counter being shut down? No. Okay. Well, he said he had only had five days left to shoot, and he was upset with his producers because he said, "I'm old and asthmatic, so what better way to die than on the job making a film?" So he was upset that they didn't allow him to continue. <laughs> How very Citizen uh, Kane. Uh, surely the insurance companies would have said something to say about that. Yeah, I don't think they'd agree, but that's Paul Schrader for you. Yeah. I wonder about all these Sorry. films, though. There's, there's multiple films I'm reading about where they only have a week or less in the shoot, and then suddenly it's postponed. I wonder if those films are ever going to be finished. They might be. You'd think that there'd be a will from the cast and crew to put the unfinished films as a priority once things normalize. Um, but it's possible that actors might not ever become available again for some of these projects. I understand how heartbreaking it is, even though Paul Schrader's response isn't rational and you, is irresponsible. I get that kind of anger. Like, it's so hard to get everything together to make a film happen. Well, you know, I, I think we're gonna, we're just going to see, and we, we're going to see it more broadly in upheaval. I, I, in in uh, they, I think people will accept if the film doesn't quite finish, or if there's another actor who comes in and explain this is the reason. I think people will accept to just accept it. I hope people and I believe people will be accommodating. In I hope so. Yeah. Broadly. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I think it is going to happen. And the, the what, what's funny, um, all the uh, the last jewel the film that Ridley Scott was working on at the moment. This is so Ridley Scott. It's a repeat of a Kevin Spacey situation. They paused production and he <sighs> said, okay, great. I'll edit what we have, which is one hour of the film. And he's insisting that it's still going to be released by the end of the year. That's oh, Ridley um, Scott's attitude, I'm, you know, never say die. I mean, yeah, well, he, but also he, he we did, need a different title with Richard. whole character in 10 days. With Richard True. Jewell and now The Last Jewel. I'm just, can we have a different title? But it's this one's dual D U A L. Oh, okay. Oh no, it's D U E L. Sorry. <laughs> it's so, not J E L. Well, the dual. Okay. Dual. Yeah. Okay. So, so we are in the coming weeks going to be providing more updates on how the um, how this will affect um, the film industry, the festival industry, what we're doing. As before, please let us know what you want us to fight about on Film Fight Club. 
And if you're, and we're going to talk about streaming over the coming weeks. And yeah. if you are on Netflix and all that, my roommates and I are watching Frozen two later tonight. Just there's plenty of stuff out there, but watch stuff that all that there's upbeat. That all it's a trying time, and there's plenty of good stuff out there. It's not just quality, but um, nice core, happy, and reminds. Feel free to watch the depressing stuff too. Those guys, those guys need you know always struggle the most. <laughs> True, but I want to. I just want to watch Paddington two right now. I feel like we're going to have a, we could have a great depression situation where like the, the big all singing, all dancing musical type stuff has a revival. Not necessarily that, but a lot of nice score. As long as it's not dances. La La Land, I'm okay. It needs to be better than that. It needs to be better than La La Land. Please make it better than La La Land and we will watch. I'll, I'll, I would like more musicals. I will watch musicals and make them. Or better, than, better than Cats. Like... Better than Cats. Definitely better than Cats. Cats, is, cats, is, cats doesn't count. <laughs> um, so speaking of, uh, I don't, I don't have any musicals. Cats is not my top ten. It's probably compiled yet. Should we do the top tens? Yeah, we let's should. Let's let's jump into it. Why not? Yeah. Jump into fire. So the way we're going to do it is, ooh, that word features in one of my titles. I want to reach read out tens. I'm not surprised because I think I know which one. <laughs> Uh, I mean, it's pretty highly, I think, I think that's in yours. We'll have a bit of a discussion, and what we're going to do, we're going to pause, we're going to tally our top 20s, and we're going to do it, the number one, our number one, we'll get a 20 points, and number two, we get 19, and we're going to come up with a Film Fight Club collective top 10. We don't know what each other's top 10s are, because we don't know what it is yet, but we'll see, and we'll fight it out. Number 10 on my list. From the City Film Festival, Never Look Away, the Florian Henkel von Donnerschmark epic. Um, I liked it because it's meditations on how, to what extent art can represent life. And it has another superb performance from my, uh, I think more, most of the underrated actors I've seen around, Sebastian Koch, who was also in um, the most excellent, um, well, many excellent projects. Number nine from the Melbourne National Film Festival, Lulu Wang's The Farewell, starring Aquafina. Um, a premise with real life resonance, uh, with a absolutely superb, bittersweet ending and a, a a very excellent wedding sequence and i liked the way that language was the languages were deployed interchangeably in this movie number eight from the sea underground underground film festival alice a french film from australian director josephine mccarris starring emily Poponier, about a woman who under starts to do work in the sex industry it is an it's an intimate portrait it's a non takes a very non-judgmental approach and i liked it because it finds humor and empathy in dark and sometimes um many of the pathetic characters who introduced throughout the film and treats them with a um, great deal of respect and reverence that will not be due in other projects. Number six, I should actually note at this point my rationale for picking my top ten. I look for films that are distinct and different in the original. I also look for films that have a rewatch value and that excel within their own genre. Um, point Case in point, number seven, Knives Out by Ryan Johnson. I grew up watching crime fiction. I absolutely adore it. And this is one of the better versions that I've seen in recent decades. It not only changes genres therein, but brings new elements and has a unique role for the victim, which is you don't really ever see in this sort of fair. Number six, Pedro Moldova's Pain and Glory from the City Film Festival. It's a kind of... Sorry, Moldova, what did I say? Sorry. Moldova. Yes. yes. You're correct, Chris, yes. Um, It is a kind film. It is a story of a wealthy man and a man who, who, who not everyone can necessarily relate to, but it tells a universally relatable story mm-hmm. of growing old and similar to Never Look Away, paints an idea of, of to what extent cinema can represent real life, a theme I've seen prominently in uh, good films throughout the year and which I 
love exploring. Number five, uh, a TV movie of sorts, my only one on this. It's a Netflix film, El Camino, the Breaking Bad film. Uh, Vince Gilligan found new ways to envelop and broaden our understanding of the characters in one of my all-time favorite series. It stands alone as a sequel to a great extent, but more importantly, you can still enjoy Breaking Bad in isolation from this. Um, it, we, we thought Jesse's story was concluded, but it gave us new dimensions to it, and it's a solid performance from, Je from Jesse Plenums as Todd, one of my all-time favorite characters in recent television memory. Number four, The Nightingale by Jennifer Kent, which had its premiere at the City Film Festival. An excellent performance from, performances from Aisling Franchkowski and Sam Clathen, with very, it might be considered, approaches to how it depicted uh, arcs of violence, revenge, and redemption. Uh, number three, another Netflix film, Marriage Story. From a performance, not my favorite performance, an excellent performance, Scarlett Johansson. Uh, it had a uniquely sensitive was painted a uniquely sensitive portrait of its characters, including its lawyers, who were not often treated especially well in cinema. But we'll, I'm sure we're going to begin talking about the story a lot more detail when we go through our top ten. Number two, Portrait Celine Sciamma's Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Number one, Bong Joon-ho's masterpiece, Parasite, both of which I had the great fortune of rewatching recently. And Parasite was the last film I watched in cinemas. Um, little while ago and I'm looking forward to discussing uh, these and more on uh, when we debate it out. Okay, uh, am I next? Uh, Chris, uh, Chris, I think you are. Okay, so number 10 is Los Reyes, the documentary. I got it at the Antenna Film Festival. Um, a really moving documentary about friendship between two dogs in a skate park in Chile. Um, number nine, So Long My Son caught at Sydney Film Festival. Uh, a lot of Sydney Film Festival is in this list, actually. Number eight, Sorry We Missed You by Ken Loach, uh, a really brutally bleak film about economic crunch in Britain. Number seven, The Nightingale. Number six, If Beale Street Could Talk, which is one of those early film releases that I think a lot of people, early year releases that I think a lot of people Oh, had, it comes down did, to this did this end of come the year out in time. 2019 in Australia? It did. Oh, it did. So you, you've God. got time to, to adjust your list. <laughs> quickly, right, quickly. I hear, I, hear, I hear him scribbling. Okay. All right. Here's the here's the here's maybe the first shocker. No, wait. Uh, I, I just quickly adjusted my list. Number five, The Irishman. Number four... Parasite. Number three, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Number two, Pain and Glory. Number one, Marriage Story. Ooh, okay. I knew, I, I think in Marriage Story would rate highest, but I was wondering where Pain and Glory and yeah. Nightingale would rate. And, okay, my, I, I'm, yeah, interesting. My okay. My shocker was putting Parasite site lower than they probably everyone else will but we'll see i'm keen to hear the rats all right so uh what i've already seen all of these movies at least twice so there is enough distance that i have in all of these lists otherwise this list is completely subjective there's no actual criteria i just like them that's why they're in there essentially so number 10 uh bhaskar hazaria's ravening which is about a forbidden affair between a married woman and her lover which gets increasingly more obtuse and scary as they test out the relationship by eating different kinds of meat. It's a really weird film, but really interesting. 
Number nine is Anand Patwardhan's Reason, which featured at the Sydney Film Festival. It's the only screening in Australia. It is about the rise of the far right in India, which is very topical. It's four and a half hours documentary. It's, yeah, watch it if you get a chance. Number eight, Knives Out, Rian Johnson. Uh, it's a lot of fun. I'm so glad I could feature a mainstream film in this list. Otherwise, all of our lists are usually very festival heavy. So I'm really happy that a mainstream film, a really fun film could feature in the list. So yeah, it's actually really that good, essentially. Number seven, Uncut Gems. I'm surprised it never featured in any of your lists. but Well, well it's because we, we it's included because... it as a 2020 film. Yes, it I would did. be very I high would, for me as well. It would be on my list too, but I'm, I'm, I'm featuring it in 2020. Yeah, Are you sure? It no came out in 2019. Australian releases. Yes. In the US, there not... was no Australian release. Okay, I was, go, I was going by the Netflix release pattern, so that technically right. would come but out in over. Australia, Netflix held it until 2020, January. Okay. Right. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, so I would have, I would. Look, All right, if, if, if Uncut Gems is not allowed, then I'm going to replace it with Beale Street Can Talk because that is something that I didn't realize. Nice. But yeah, okay, fine. Yeah. Number seven, Beale Street Can Talk. Because that deserves it up there. I totally forgot that was even this year. So, all right. That's a good swap out. Uh, number six is the Malayalam film Kumbalangi Nights. It's a beautiful, beautiful intimate portrait of three brothers who are very disparate. It's a slice-of-life film. Very Richard Linklater, but set in India in a Kerala backwaters. Shot wonderfully. It's one of the best shot films of the year. Really good. Number five is Bong Joon-ho's Parasite. I'm surprised it featured on number five because I didn't realize we had better films, but we do on my list. Number four, Nadav Lapid's Synonyms, which was I was also expecting more love mm. for that one in your list, but especially yours, Chris, because I think we, you and I were quite on the same page in that one. But even in the rewatch, because yeah, I saw it, it in the Jewish, uh, I saw it in the Jewish Film Festival in the rewatch. It really did hold up really nicely, especially the dance sequence, which was fantastic. Some of the themes in that one are really, really interesting. Number three is another Malayalam film called Virus, which actually is very topical given what's happening right now in the world. It is about the breakout of the Nipah virus in Kerala in 2016 and how people go around containing it. It talks about all the things we're talking about right now, flattening the curve, self-isolation, social distancing. It's all in that movie. And it's actually done really well. Number two, Pain and Glory. We've already talked about it. And number one, I'm sure you guys haven't guessed because I've been talking about this film quite a lot throughout the year. It's The Portrait of a Lady on Fire. So that's my wow. top okay. ten. Wow. All right. Shall we okay. rub our hands together and come out with a Film Fight Club top ten? Yes, we shall. We're going to uh, pause for a sec and then we're going to... We're not going to pause the listener, but you'll hear a jump now when we uh, come back in, in our own future. So we have tallied... All our top 10s, all top 20s. What we've done is if you came 20th on the list, you got one point. If you came first on the list, you got 20 points. We've collated it, and we have a Film Fight Club top 10 and top 5, which we're going to debate into the podcast. Number 8. I say number 8 because, interestingly, we have a few ties in our top 10. I'm looking forward to debating our top 5, where there is where both the ties exist. Number 8 on 17 points is The Unknown Saint, the Moroccan film which premiered at the Sydney Film Festival. Number 7... On 18 points is The Farewell, Lulu Wang's film, which premiered at the Melbourne International Film Festival. Number six on 24 points is The Irishman by Martin Scorsese. Number five, technically part of our top five on 28 points, is Rian Johnson's Knives Out. Number four on 29 points, If Bill Street Could Talk, 
Notably, on our all our top 20 lists, there were six crossovers, all of which appeared in our top 10 list, four of which occur in our top five. Third place, tied on 39 points, both from the Sydney Film Festival, is Jennifer Kent's Nightingale and Celine Sciamma's Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Number two, on 46 points, is Noah Bumbuck's Marriage Story, and which was on Netflix. And tying for first... On 53 points, both of them the film festival premiere. Drum roll. Almodovar's Pain and Glory and Bong Joon Ho's Parasite. Okay. I can I can be happy about that tie. Wow. But imagine that I don't think Pain and Glory that got that kind of love as much as we've given it. So, you know, film critics unite. I think people feel yeah, we can discuss this further in the podcast, but I think maybe people felt like it was too typical an El Motivar film. Like El Motivar is passe to the international film community, whereas a lot of them are just discovering Bong Joon-ho. But like, I, I what's wrong with that? Favorite, but I'm glad Parasite's up there. Yeah, of course. I think we're going to be... I, I think we're always betting into the podcast. Um, if you're listening on the radio, uh, please do subscribe on iTunes and Spotify and tune in next week. And also... A lot of our more regular stuff will be up on the podcast. So, so please subscribe. Let us know what you want us to fight about. Tell us a film that's streaming that you want us to talk about. And just, yeah, take care of yourselves. Be, be good to each other. Enjoy movies. It's uh, it's worth it's noting. Yeah. It's worth noting that this could be the last episode we air on the radio because you never know when a lockdown might happen. So it's, it's never been a better time to subscribe to our podcast yeah. because we'll still be able to upload episodes made this way. Never been a greater yes, time to be an Australian. Ta-da. Never yeah, time. Uh, better try to have a Spotify account and or iTunes. So all yes, the streaming accounts. All the streaming accounts. So yeah, this has been Glenn Falcons and Chris Simmons of Rotten Nehru. Um, as again, enjoy movies, enjoy life, stay safe, and we look forward to debating these well into the night. Good night. Welcome back to Film Fight Club, where we are talking our top tens and fives and twenty. 2018. We just tallied our top fives. We've never had a tie in our top fives, top tens before. We had a top two ties in our top five. The common films, the crossovers between all three of us, they were interesting. Parasite, Knives Out, The Nightingale, Pain and Glory, The Farewell, and Marriage Story. The number of documentaries, a number of festival premieres, a number of Netflix and streaming premieres. Uh, it's I'm, I'm, yeah, pretty diverse list all up. I'm pretty, I'm pretty happy with this. I'm not, I have such mixed views on The Irishman, which came in at number six. Yeah, I, I was surprised at how uh, how low it went, to be honest. Um, I, if anything, I'm wondering now, maybe this is the effect of groupthink, maybe. But seeing everyone <laughs> else's lists and thinking over, I'm like, oh, did I put The Irishman that too high? I was moved by The Irishman, and I was entertained for, you know, nearly four hours, three and a half hours, right? Even though I, you know, it's it was two hundred nineteen minutes, wasn't it? Yeah, that's my thing with the Irishman. Uh, one of my criteria is rewatch value. I liked it in epic. I do think it was too long. I don't I know if I'll was, ever rewatch it. The thing about it being too long is the Irishman. Um, what is too long, right? It was it felt long, but I wasn't bored. Even though I agree that it could have been shorter. Um, I mean, you're right. It, when you compare it to something like A Hidden Life, which is long but it felt even longer then yeah uh, definitely i mean it's about yeah it felt what do you do uh, with the, the time irishman that is, you're given yeah the irishman i felt was 
very entertaining for what it is and comes to a really good conclusion. Um, it's tough. A lot of these films I have qualms about. Let's see, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I'll be talking about later. I rated that really highly, but there's a few things about it I outright don't like. It could have climbed even higher without them, potentially. Yeah. To, to note our personal, of the films that we rated the highest, which no one else had in their lists, of Chris, it was Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. For Verita, it was Virus. Myself, it was El Camino. Um, of the top five, all three of us had each of those films, with the exception of Portugal Lady on Fire, um, which Kristen and I have. Uh, Bill Street came next. I didn't have that. I haven't seen it in Venice. And Knives Out was following that, which for all three of us rated. Uh, mm. It barely made Chris's top 20, but it came much higher on myself and Verats. I think I think it's possible that um, the souvenir, if I oh, would have watched that again, could have cracked in. That was a movie I really liked, but I... I really should watch it again in order to determine how I really feel about it because it's quite a strange abstract one and how it's made and another strange one that was a bit higher on my list. It made Virat's top 10, I think, um, quite high in his top 10 as well. And for me, it was just in the top 20, was synonyms. So, um, you know, the lists always change. Your taste changes. You watch films again and your perspective on them shifts. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's a classic example of that is Marriage Story. Initially, it was easily in my top five, if not even top ten. And I was surprised by how little by little, film by film, it just kept creaking into like, oh, now it's out of my top five. Now it is almost making my top ten. And now it eventually, it made my top 20, but I was surprised because it was always there in contention, but it mm. kind of slipped out of my top ten. The same thing happened to me with Nightingale. I ranked that in my top 10, but early on, when I first saw that, it would be high up in the list. I think the direction was so powerful that it's an incredible experience to watch it, but there's things about the way it's structured that when more time passes from when that spell is cast over you as you watch it, you can maybe look at and... Uh, be less impressed. I don't know. Like, did you? Do we all agree that the Nightingale is a fairly, you could say, manipulative standard exploitation film structure? It is. It is. But I, I think what I did appreciate I, was the fact that how the film was done. It's not necessarily the execution is, you know, the template the is set for amazing, you, yeah. but yeah, the execution and also uh, to bring in the elders and do it the right way. I think it's important. And tell the story from that perspective, and using non-actors for that effect was quite incredible. Mm. Yeah, I, I don't think it's. I, I don't agree. It's manipulative. I, I take the view that there's, well, there's a few moments in that film. There's nothing in it that hasn't happened, and it certainly hasn't been researched extensively within the course of that era, and that and that time. They present film moments very graphically, but I don't think it is purely for emotive, but also for intellectual effect. I don't think the moments that are most graphic are exploitative reasons. We discussed extensively earlier. But there's a few moments. The emotional fault rather than the physical graphic um, consequences, which other films will want to do, that are more manipulative. And for the most so. part, For the most part, I agree, but there's a few moments of like, look at how evil this the villain is that are a bit too much. I, you know, I think even you would agree that for at least one moment in this film. I don't want to get into spoilers. 
I think there but, there is one moment where that the element of violence that we did discuss earlier in the year, uh, which later in the film, a murder which did not, uh, I, I I think add anything to understanding his character or the narrative. Yeah, agreed. Having said that, I did give Claffin an a template to explore the most intensive part of his acting ability. Certainly, he's uh, even better in a film like Journey's End, but he was good in this. I don't think he was an over-the-top character. I do believe that persons who, historically, and certainly in circumstance, who want to pursue that sort of power or have his sort of sorts of objects in mind would would pursue that and try to attempt to achieve that with relentless abandon, relentlessness for whomever would come in his path. I don't. I didn't find that unbelievable, even if he was an extreme villain. Uh, if, mm. if anything else, I, I think for me, the violence was could have been even more graphic for the time it was depicting it. It, I'm, I'm, I, and I know for a lot of people it was like, oh my god, I can't believe I've just seen that on screen. But you know, it's not that far from reality of what a lot of people experience. So, I mean, just because it shows that in that way, is it graphic? I mean, Tarantino does graphic stylized violence as well, right? So, uh, if it's well, accomplishing if it's- a point. Then it's well, then I guess it's in service of the narrative rather than just gratuitous. Then yes, I guess it's it's fair to that point. But it's even less than. I mean, Kent made the point. Kent made the point at the premiere in response to people walking out that if she were to show the extent of what actually happened exactly. in this era, I agree. and graphically yeah. so, it would not be a watchable film. I agree, um, and that is a general rule for a lot of cinema. Um, or films that otherwise depict violence in a different manner. She chose certain elements of violence to depict. I do agree that it could have been um, much more harrowing and even more harrowing than it was. I so it's it's certainly ranked high on my list. I mean, we've talked uh, extensively throughout the year about how films depict violence and how like, and how it's important to pick certain dimensions of it that have uh, can have the most consequence. And Nightingale, I think. Uh, is, highlights this in very well, as did a number of the films that featured in our collective top 20s. And for that reason, among that others, including the performances, I think it rated very high on the list. I am very curious as to the actress that um, she, the very famous actress, a list that Kent refused for the role over Aisling Francioski. But I guess it's something we, we won't know. I, and I'm I'm pleased that Nightingale has just had a big run overseas. It seems to have resonated, not to the same extent as it did in Australia, but with some overseas markets. And I guess yeah, in so that, that sense, so that the was... controversy did work well for them for the film. You know, sometimes you need a bit of controversy to get people to see it. And I guess this is an uncomfortable film. And sometimes, I, I know I'm trying to be facetious, but I'm not. Sometimes you need a controversy to get people interested in a, in a film that makes them uncomfortable. Because otherwise, this is a film which is too uncomfortable and people could as easily give it a miss because it is just so harrowing that I'm not going to see it because I don't want to see a film that makes me uncomfortable. I'm glad it didn't happen cool. to the Nightingale. Um, it's interesting to note the film that at times for the third place, Portrait of Lady on Fire, a film I rate higher than Nightingale. I did prefer it. It's a very different genre. It's an entirely different movie, but for its gothic bona fides, for the quality of its cinematography, and again, for how to lose state, I think even better than Pain and Glory and Never Look Away, which also which were in my top ten on that year, to what extent cinema can be a simulacrum of life, to what extent it can represent life. I did it most elegantly. I saw it again all of two weeks ago. And it also and something I didn't appreciate as much the first time. That's some of my favorite dialogue 
of the year. There's one, probably my favorite taught in recent cinema, where she says, I didn't know you were a critic. And she says, I didn't know you were a painter. And just wonderful <laughs> moments like that. Oh, God. Um, I know I, it's, not, it's not my favorite of the year, but I think, yeah, I know you rated that it. it's your favorite of the year still. You said earlier in the year that it was probably going to be your favorite, and it's stuck as your number one. I know. I mean, it's I'm I'm a sucker for romantic doom drama, so I guess you know whether it is in the mood for love or portrait. So I, 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 th- I think doomed it's, romance. Yeah, doomed romance. So <laughs> man, when are we on an aside there? When are we actually going to get to see the uh, the in the mood for love restoration that was meant to debut at Cannes Film Festival? Yeah, the twentieth anniversary. Then I mean, the world. Well, I was basically probably would be at City Film Fest in the classic section. I know and. Pretty much, that was the only thing I was looking forward to in 2020. I had marked my calendar that come around May, Criterion is doing a 4K restoration release. Uh, They're doing 4K of all of of Wonka Wai's films. Yeah, and it's starting with this one. But now, is it even the right time? Is it the right nostalgia? Is it the right celebration mood? Is anybody even going to be interested? Uh, I don't know. Well, you know, we, we actually had these discussions... Uh, to let you in behind the scenes about our show, we were like saying, should we discuss the uh, top 20 of the year? Is it the right time? But we thought we've put it off so long and this might be the last episode we air on the radio and we're giving people something to watch when if they go into self-isolation or quarantine. Uh, so why not? All these things are available. They're on streaming. Yeah. They're on available we've waited to rent. Long enough. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, so, yeah, I'm, I'm glad... I'm glad we're talking about our favorites of the year, and it's nice to talk about films we do genuinely love. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm still, I mean, I'd love to talk about the top five, but um, for me, yeah, a film actually what I want to rewatch is Times Out. Because I just, I just, it's a cool, it's a fun movie. I, I, just, I, I had a good time. It, yeah. It was a lot, a lot of fun. And, 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 I, and I try to, especially, yeah, I think sometimes we get bad, bad reps as, as critics that we don't include fun movies. But I'm glad that it all featured in our collective. Well, Looking Best at my top is. twenty, yeah, I feel like a lot of, if anything, my top twenty seems to say that I just like fun movies. A lot of the more serious stuff, like the souvenir, slips out, and something like the beach bum gets in. Which is very, um, which is interesting because uh, you know, from from our personas uh, that we've built over the radios that a lot of listeners are used to, I, I think you would be the more kind of you know, it has to be cinema and poetic. If not, yeah, I hate exactly. it kind of thing. You know, I hate the fun Marvel movies. But from yeah, your actual yeah. best off no, list, I, I you actually do enjoy those, the fun movie, but it just not. I was considering, you know. yeah, I, I was considering trolling you guys and sending in a list with Avengers Endgame and Star Wars: Rise of Skywalker. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh... See, if you put in Rise of Skywalker, would have known you were trolling. But I remember you actually quite liked at least the first two acts of Endgame as to die. I think yeah, would be surprised oh, in your top twenty, but. Yeah, but I think sometimes you've got to stick to your principles, right? Like you hate the corporate guts, so you, you can't... Even if, if, even, exactly. if they, even if they put out a good product, it's, it's not because you are appreciating it's, the product, you're standing for the principle that I don't agree with the fact that they exist. So that's why they can't be afforded. No, not, not at all. If there was a Marvel <laughs> film, a really good one, it would be in my top 20, absolutely, if, without fear or favor. Okay, if the film was <laughs> genuinely excellent, then I would put a aside the fact that I don't like the Marvel corporatization of cinema. But it's hard to do that because things but can like you, the way that can you sort of untangle both things? Can can I don't a, think a can. genuinely like, good film be films, made within that template? That's that's the thing, right? I think it's very hard. 
as far as my taste is concerned, because things like the way that every movie is an ad for the next one dock a lot of points in my mind. Like that, I whenever that those moments pop up in a Marvel film, I just think, oh, really? You know? Uh, so like... for me, it's very hard. Yeah. If, if Disney got rid of a lot of these corporate mandates, which you can see all over their films, then I think I'd be more likely to say, yeah, that was a good time in the well, movies. If... I enjoyed it. Yeah. For me, with the Marvel films, one of the criteria that I took out of films in, or by, out of my top 20 or they moved it very far down if there was a glaring omission or a glaring big problem. And even if a Marvel film was really great, if there was just consistently the self-serving, oh, by the way, we are going to have this film later, irrespective of our broad films in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, that's such a red flag for me. I can't stand it. It's one of the things I find most annoying. One of the things that was even my, a little bit refreshed to our endgame was, was there was less of those, even if it did have the aside with Loki and others. Ugh, there's no, are there any conflict movies in our top 20s at all? No, 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 no. I'm so over it. I wish, I wish yeah. people would, would be, get more political in the way that they analyze entertainment this way, you know, and say, I'm sick of comic book movies. Yeah, know? yeah. But like, people, what about people, those, I think, what about those people who are like, oh my God, why do you have to look for politics and everything, Chris? You know, have art for entertainment's sake, because art is art, you know, and it's entertainment. Yeah. Why do I have to look for political meaning everywhere? I just want to have a fun okay. time. Ryan Johnson, Ryan Johnson made a Ryan really, Johnson his last just went movies. away and made a good film. His last two films, this and Star Wars. After getting See, kicked out of Star Wars. I really enjoyed Star Wars. He kicked out of Star Wars. I think he was. I think, I think so. Come on. He said Come he on, on Glenn. The trilogy, and then suddenly we haven't heard any news on it. I, oh, I think trilogy. he was Excuse me. Okay. I thought you meant referring to episode nine. Yeah. I think it's one of those things that they'll just never announce it's cancelled. They'll just never move forward in production on it and just hope that people forget about it. And then one day someone will ask Grant Johnson and they'll say, yeah, I'm not doing that anymore. I, th I think they just they were cowards after so many people hated Rian with uh, what he did with The Last Jedi. Which, by, by the way, is a corporate franchise movie that I really, really like. Exactly. See? I rewatched it recently. I like it. Why don't... I, I don't want him to do Star Wars. Be my I want Ryan Johnson to go and pick a new genre and just make another film. They did crime fiction. He did it well. He created several genres within it. He had a new role. For, he had new roles, See? new functions. He was generally surprising. Pick... You're gone. Oh, you're back. We missed the last part of what you said, or at least I did. I don't know if you're oh, right. Yeah, sorry. yeah, yeah. Um, this well, sometimes happened with Skype. I was just, I was simply saying that in the event that Ryan Johnson makes another genre film of any genre, I'm gonna go. I hope he picks well, different random things, whether it be sci-fi or fantasy. He's doing, uh, he's doing another film about Benoit Blanc because Knives Out was such a hit. Lionsgate asked for a sequel. Uh, personally, I don't want that, but I'm always open when a talented filmmaker makes something. I'm, you know, I'm not writing it yeah. off. As long um, as it's, it's just a bagel with a hole with another bigger hole in it, yeah, right. I'm all for it. Part of the thrill of Knives Out was the way it subverted the, um, a big part of the thrill was the way it subverted the usual template for um, these redundant murder mysteries. And part of that was not knowing if Benoit actually had a hold on the situation or if he was actually just an idiot for a large part of the running time. Yeah. And that trick won't be available in a sequel, so... Um, but, you know, maybe yeah. Rian Johnson, a very inventive guy who's really good at subverting your expectations, will find another way to surprise Exactly. Us. I mean, and the classic pun from a whodunit to a whodonut. So, you know, it's a fun. Anyway. The donut puns continue. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and, and honestly, Rian Johnson spent seven years longer working 
work in that screenplay. I'm happy to wait another seven years for a film of that quality, a film of its nature, but I don't want him to rush it. No, but that's the good nature. part about um, the the world we're living in now. That you know, there's no rush. It, it there's nothing. <laughs> the world is not <laughs> moving anywhere. <laughs> you know, we're not getting any production happening. We're not getting any new uh, movies. Okay. Um, Take all the time to write your perfect screenplay. Sorry, these are the growing pains of doing yeah, Skype yeah. for the first time. We can't we can't get a hold on each other as well as we can in the studio. I was just going to ask about Ad Astra. I know it's in your top 20 for art. I was surprised it wasn't in your top 20, because I know you quite liked it when you walked out. I quite liked it, but not enough to make the top t- There are actually quite a few films I quite liked that weren't quite up there enough to make the top 20. I was surprised for I liked it so much, actually. Well, I, I thought you quite liked it as well, Glenn. I really like, I, it was one of my favorite mainstream releases from the year. I like the Conrad-esque Heart of Darkness deep dive into space. Um, there are a couple of things that annoyed me, including the, uh, oh, suddenly there's this convenient, convenient tragic circumstance where all the other astronauts on the ship die, and then the ending where he shot off into space. Um, but yeah. and I, but the, the ending itself with uh, around Neptune and the Mars sequence was beautifully shot. The sequence with the mandrel was stunning. Um, I didn't like the buggy chase. I know we were on this, Chris, but mm. I liked the film for the most part, including the gorgeous starting opening sequence with the fall from the um, from the stratosphere. For me, it was just a little bit half-baked. Like, the buggy chase um, is an example of that beautifully directed. Um, I think it's one of the best car chase-type scenes in recent memory. Um, but if you think about it, it's really stupid. Um, a lot of the movies kind of like that in how plot seems to um, a lot of things happen for the sake of convenient plot development and i found the voiceover to be spelling a lot of things that were already implicit in the screenplay um out you know too much that was my big issue with it honestly Uh, the biggest problem was felt like a smart movie dressed as a dumb movie i I found it surprising that Brad Pitt got a lot of accolades from Once Upon a Time and the role in there rather than Ad Astra because I felt his performance in this film was way better and he had more scope to do more things than in Once Upon a Time. Uh, the role in Once Upon a Time was, uh, even by Brad Pitt and even Tarantino standards, quite generic and formulaic. But Ad Astra was actually... He, this was my favorite brooding man, dad lost in space role uh, in the last four or five years that we've had the template done so, yeah, in terms of that, it's I thought it was really good. Too. <laughs> I'm going to have to uh, debate uh, you on Brad Pitt there, but before we get into that, um, just before the conversation moves too far away from where we were, um, since we were talking about Portrait of a Lady on Fire before, uh, I, that's the only movie where I've really felt this year like I'm... Compl- actually, both of those films, <laughs> Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and Portrait of a Lady on Fire, were the only films where I felt like I was completely out of step with both of you in terms of... That you know, once upon a time in Hollywood didn't crack any of your top twenties, and for me, it was like number three of the year. Um, though I might, I might adjust that to number four or five, on, you know, on another yeah, rewatch. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. But so, um, I loved it, and you guys didn't see much in it. And on the other hand, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, I thought was a good film, but I could not understand why everyone was so blown away by it. For me, it was just kind of like too safe and tame. Whereas other people seem to have seen this really. Um, incredible simmering uh, tension under a calm exterior. Whereas for me, I just kind of saw a kind of by the numbers art house romance. I 
I've worked lyrical already on what I loved about Portrait of Lady on Fire. I found that the sequences, particularly as she's just required to sit there as they paint the long plaintive looks, it resonated for me in the best mm. traditions of what, and I, I said Gothic fiction earlier, but what I'm actually thinking of is the precursors to Gothic fiction where um, person's interactions were restrained. And uh, certainly this ties in heavily with the queer theme of the film. And I, it, it was, it sold, they sold to me to the extent that the performers, I know they've done many other projects, but they're so, were so situated within the character's environment that um, I found it strange watching interviews with Skiyama and Hanel and her co-star and seeing them and just doing, you know, regular 21st century stuff. Um, but however, I know that um, it wasn't my favorite of the year, but it was Verot's favorite. Uh, well, <laughs> Glenn, you're not quite wrong. There, there is a huge section on, on Twitter that is all raging about how they're shipping Naomi and Adele together in, in some kind of alternate universe Well, where they're not with different partners. Anyway, that's a different so that's, thing. Altogether. That's, the, that's what's funny about the queer, <laughs> that's what's interesting and funny about the, the way the, the queer audience consumes these films, because normally with art house films about doomed romances, you're never going to have shippers. Yeah. But when, because the, the queer audience doesn't have a lot of entertainment options available for them, I think a lot of the time people who wouldn't otherwise watch these kinds of art house movies, it was the same with Call Me By Your Name. Yeah. Uh, watch them because they're looking for some, some representation of themselves. And there's they, another film I think we're missing out know, of this you, conversation. You get elements of fandom that would yeah. never be applied to art house like I know. shipping. I love it. I love it. Yeah, it's so absurd I, to me, I, shipping I, Portrait of a Lady on Fire. I, I love it. I, 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 I think we, I forget to be clear that when we talk about queer cinema, um, you, you look at, yes, um, Call It By Your Name and, both, and Portrait of a Lady on Fire both screened at the Queer Film Festival. They are queer films that don't just fit within the queer genre. They fit in the I agree. more I agree. traditional romance genre in that romance, and while there's a major crossover in both respects, uh, many, what you would typically clarify that qualifies as a romance film, uh, does follow certain material tropes as do as does queer cinema respects, and there are to films be, that follow both. And Portrait of Lady and Fire is one, so it does have that crossover appeal. To be fair, I don't think any good film is going to be classified as just a queer film. Drama is drama. If it's good I drama, agree. it's going to cross over. But in terms I of defense, I'm not saying the yeah. I'm not saying the tropes are restrictive. I mean, it's just things that you will um, that that typically look to fit into that genre in addition to but more over than others i, I think mm. what you're trying to get at glenn and i kind of agree with you that sometimes people try to box these films as to oh it's a queer film like, happened with love simon is a, is a classic example of that where you know you're trying to look at a you know it's a teen it's a teen film teen it's film a teen and, you know, exactly and it's like oh the first queer teen comedy so you're trying to like you know, i don't know fit all these films into boxes and a portrait is a great example where it, yes it is a queer film but it's not just that in fact, probably the, the strongest parts of Portrait, which resonated with me a lot, were not necessarily about the queer elements, but actually about how the female gaze completely subverted a lot of the expectations around it. I mean, that whole subplot around the helper and how and her whole arc and how that basically became a subset for sisterhood was very interesting and what it was doing in this very kind of queer romance. But that also was part of how you would see uh, a relationship bond and develop over time. So there's enough in there, and the use of Vivaldi was also very interesting. The music, obviously, choices really did come at the right time and did punctuate a lot of the emotional resonance of the film. 
Uh, a very good final scene. Very final good final, final scene. Too. Uh, very good use of Greek drama, Greek tragedy. So you know, if you love your literature, this is a very much. This is very much a snob Latin Greek person's film. And in a way, in a, you know, if you like that kind of things and using their tropes to magnify a lot of the themes, I think it, it will be doing really well. But I, I think it's just also beautifully shot, which is the one thing I think I would like to debate with Chris. The the first thing that stands out for me is portrait. It's it's not tame or it's not even. It's very vibrant and very vivacious in the way it's shot and it's beautifully constructed and framed. And I think that's the interesting thing where you felt it was pretty cold and pretty run the mill, but I I thought it was pretty uh, very new and. I thought it was elegant. Okay, but maybe too refined. Is it? See, yeah, for me it was maybe yeah, maybe too refined. (laughs) Too French. Like like when I. (laughs) Yeah, like 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 too restrained. Like I, I for me, it felt like it was going for this restraint to the level where it was verging but, on becoming too lifeless. Whereas but, but, other but people thought, see all this tension beneath the surface. But, yeah, exactly. But because I thought the restraint is necessary because it's trying to convey the idea that it's a forbidden romance, right? You I know, understand. So the I way it's shot is mirroring theory. the the kind of inner feelings of both characters. So anyway, yeah, right. anyway, yeah. this is a film we um, will I have endless debates on because. Clearly, we just yeah. saw different films, which is also a part I'll of I'll watch it again. I'll watch it again when a few years have passed. <laughs> yeah. Um, th- uh, th- three points there. The firstly, in regards to the Greek myth, it's nice to see a film which does alter how archetypal myths, in this case, the um, Orpheus myth, is handled and also does deal with a lot of exposition on it, but then does it in a way that is still engaging. And in that context, uh, the exposition was entirely relevant. Um, on the matter um, was shot on rewatching it, I found myself with cause to think of the Rembrandt exhibit and the Reich that came mm-hmm. to Australia a couple of years ago. And the Reich amazing exhibit. exhibit. Uh, there's a terrible moment. Oh, uh, it was it was incredible. The there's a, there was a terrible moment in a, a much lesser film. They still enjoyed one for a few years back. Um, the Mister something in the Wonder Woman um, with Luke oh, Evans. Oh, Doctor Marston and, and the Wonder Woman. Yeah, yeah. The um, there's oh, a, Professor the sequence Marston where the they pause. Okay. Yes. Professor Marston. They build this moment where they see her as Wonder Woman and a lot of films pause to reflect or, on these individual images, whereas I think Shkiyama has tried to collate a number of portraits within this film within very rapid succession that resonated, which is strong. Sometimes that means the film is a little slower, but I liked the pace because I felt there was that simmering tension um, to the matter of its genre. Honestly, for me, it went by very quickly. I didn't find it slow-paced. Yeah, for two-hour movie, it was very, it was very snappy. Um, mm-hmm. To the matter of genre, I don't think um, films that, that do screen are necessarily or always try to be prescriptive as the genre. This did have elements of romance, what is typically taken as quote-unquote cinema um, I appreciate that it didn't as do most try to box into one or the other but it looked for not just the crosshair appeal in terms of those genres but uh, dramatic uh, persons who love dramas persons who love period pieces persons who love traditional art and this is art represented in film um, there are many great films that screen throughout the Sydney Film Festival and queer screen of uh, varying styles, and this was certainly uh, my favorite queen queer screen this year. Um, I, I love that you brought up Love Simon. Um, I asked Lisa about Love Simon when she programmed it, and I thought this is very different from a lot of the films you program. And she says, You know what? This is our first teen rom com, and 
um, I get it, and I'm so I'm glad it was there. We uh, you know that Love Simon might be becoming a TV show for Disney Plus or potentially Hulu if because the producers might want more freedom than they could have under Disney Plus. Yeah, Disney Plus. What was the uh, to diverge greatly? The, the Hillary Duff show, Lizzie McGuire. Apparently, it's oh not going God. ahead because the reports are that Disney were not happy with um, how about portraying Lizzie, how producers, and reportedly including Duff, wanted to portray Lizzie McGuire as a 30-year-old adult. But also, like, Hillary Duff... Well, it's risky. Th- Lizzie McGuire is like, the, do you grow up with your audience? Um, you should, but that tarnishes, I guess, the, the childishness of the original show, right? But also, like, like, Hillary Duff now is super political and, like, actually quite an activist, so it's also interesting to see how she's morphed into having an actual, you know, activist appeals. There's just... Yeah, there's just not room, like something like Harry Potter, you can age them up a bit because there was always a little bit of darkness in there, so you can just play further into those elements. Well, Daniel Radcliffe recently... groundbreaking to portray her as a realistic adult, so I get it. Yeah, Daniel Radcliffe recently gave an interview how being on the sets of Harry Potter almost made him an alcoholic, so, I mean, there's that, so... Really? Interesting. So he did, definitely did not enjoy that experience. Not having not having a childhood and doing these very long, grueling film shoots every year during your, your formative years, I think, while being a massive celebrity, um, that does sound very tough. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, so Nightingale, we talked about Nightingale Port, sorry, morning, I guess, a portrait. And, um, excuse me, I mean, sorry, portrait of Nightingale, which were our collective top third mm. number two on that list is marriage story which we all voted for which came in 46.7 behind our tie for first place we all liked it it was netflix's best movie last year um marriage my story? favorite possible oh yes oh yeah favorite performance from an actor last year adam driver in the lead role i thought both everyone in that film was incredible even the minor supporting roles yeah um i think bombach is clearly such an amazing director of actors and he's given them incredible material the only thing um, is like you know laura dern she's done way much better stuff but she got an oscar because she's owed so that's fine but she's owed and and it's also they like to give long respected actors a kind of reward oscar when they suddenly put in um like she's having a career resurgence right now so it's a combined thing not just for that film. I think the same was true of Brad Pitt. It yeah. wasn't just for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It was a Brad Pitt is owed. Fair he's enough. Done a, Fair he's enough. done a bunch of great work this year and last, and so here's the Oscar. Um, but I, I do want to debate you on whether Brad Pitt was better in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood or Ad Astra. Um, I think he was better in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I, I really? Thought I would agree. Uh, yeah. yeah, I, I thought um, he... For the most part, you can just say yeah, he's coasting, doing this um, chilled-out stoner kind of character. Um, but I thought he was incredibly likable behind that, but had enough tension that you could believe he's capable of some of the violence that we see later on, that it doesn't come as a complete surprise. Um, the acting... And he's the unreliable narrator, so like he has to basically... If if you if you don't buy that, then you don't buy the film. Yeah. Um, his LSD acting towards the end of the film, I thought was hilarious. It's hilarious. It's his best comedy work. Yeah, definitely. Um, um, but you know, a lot of not enough people, I think, spoke about how great DiCaprio's performance was. 
Uh, I would have been happy with an Oscar win for him, honestly. The, scene, the extended sequence of the filming of the pilot where we see DiCaprio acting as this character and then breaking out into the fr frustrated version of the... the um, is it... What's his character's name? Rick Dalton. He's switching between Rick Dalton and this character he's playing in a pilot at whim. And you can see a different style of acting. You can see the Rick Dalton style of acting, Phil, you know, which is DiCaprio, but not. I thought that was absolutely brilliant. And it, it's that whole scene is like an Oscar demo. A couple of points to DiCaprio. Um, his line reading of I'm a has beat is one of my all time. I was my favorites of the year. He was moving and, and funny I, at the same I, I time. Love, it was great. I love watching. I talked about before. I love watching actors play, uh, play actors on screen, but there's a nuance to his performance with Rick Dalton because DiCaprio is a good actor playing a bad actor who thinks he's a good actor. And I mean, you don't see that. A lot of fun. On the matter of Brad Pitt, I liked him in Ad Astra. I think his long looks were very effective. It reminded me, however, at times of a film that he did that I don't like at all, which is the Curious Case of Benjamin Button, where Fincher just has him looking into the camera as if, oh, Brad Pitt, your deep blue eyes are effective enough. Uh, I think James Gray knew that how to That was a great film. I don't know what you're talking about. No, Benjamin no. Button. Yeah, can we have yeah, a film fight know. about this? Sure, gladly. Do you, Chris, you're not a. Fa oh, oh no, I haven't seen it since it came out, but I thought it was okay. It's a but my good taste has probably shifted a fair bit since then. I thought it was okay, verging towards good, but I wouldn't recommend Glenn, it. Glenn, oh my God, Glennigan. I'm happy to talk about Glennigan's way. I was a teenager when I saw this movie, including Alien Three. Um, but uh, yes, yeah, so okay, what were we, what were we on? In Haunts Upon a Time in Hollywood, he, it, he, he didn't need the narration that was seen as um, part of the course in Ad Astra. My favorite sequence with him, aside from the scene in these trailers, is actually just him walking on the roof and sunbaking and, or sunbaking and it's just getting in the charisma. car. And, yeah, and it works. It works. I liked him in it. I, the read to your point, earlier point, Chris, about how did it make on the 20s? I feel there is an extension which is out of me. It was uh, extensively long. I appreciated all the storylines that were going on to an extent. However, there was uh, too much, too much packed in. Once upon a time in Hollywood. Um, it, it was yes. I, I enjoy. I could have watched. I could have watched as a TV series. I liked the shorter episodes where. Margot Robbie as Sharon Tate is wandering around. Um, I think the visit to the ranch, as much as it felt like a spiral into this hellscape at times. I love that could just as well be film. It, it worked for Austin Butler on the horse, but, and as much as I appreciate the quality of, the, of what he staged in the final scene, it did feel that we're departing from the, and, and yes, I know it's an exaggerated version of history, but it felt like it was such a, in, in the way that it came about rather than what it transpired, it felt like such a departure in tone from else. And the Bob Miller is going to decide to go to this house. You now. know, uh, this, look, the, I loved so much of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I, I even liked some parts of the ending. Um, I, from the very ending of it, I did find affecting, but the most controversial element of the movie, the 
extended sequence of violence right near the end, I actually had big problems with. For me, it's like if only that one little thing was changed, the movie would be so much better. The whole movie is like the more mature Tarantino um, that we've seen in earlier films like Jackie Brown, but we rarely see these days. Um, and it's like he, like the juvenile uh, elements of Tarantino just couldn't help but be expressed in some massive way because they've been held in such a remove for so long. And I wish that he had decided to end that film differently. But outside of that... I, yeah. I like on paper, I get catharsis similar to Inglorious Bastards, but yeah, in that situation, it was a style of violence more endemic to the stat story and that style of storytelling. I agree. It's why I prefer Inglorious Bastards still over this film. Okay, uh, so yeah, once upon a time in Hollywood and Marriage to both on streaming and you know, yeah, still still big followings. I mentioned this before, but I actually really regret um, not putting Souvenir higher up. I'll, I'll watch it again and get back to you because that was a really mature film um, that actually stuck with me. In, in a, but and she's doing I a trilogy, just, which I hope she completes now or whatever she gets part to complete at least. Trilogy, wow. Yeah, well, she's finished filming part two, I think. Robert Pattinson was going to be in it, but yeah. dropped out because of Batman. Um, so that was split into two lower profile actors. Um, yeah, I... I I hope she'll get to do part three, but otherwise, you know, I'm sure it'll end in such a way that it'll be a complete I mean, film as the suit. It's, it's better than the Mechtube My Love trilogy, which is, you know, so, you know. Yeah, have you seen, I think Virat's the only one who's seen Mechtube My Love, Canto Uno. Yeah, no, I, I haven't seen I've it. I've seen Canto Uno, but after I heard I'm, how I actually, terrible it was, the second part, I didn't get the courage to get it's a bit, so, the yeah. one. I actually thought it sounded interesting. Like, I, I know every, all the headlines were like, oh, it's just shaking butts. And it's like, all right, but is it good? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> right. no, but seriously, like, it, it, but seriously, etc. It was all just like ass puns in the, the con coverage. But the thing which, is, like, in the, in the first film, like there, there is wow. yes, there's one extended graphic sex scene, but it's right in the beginning of the film, and that's about it. Like every the whole right. film is, the, the, but maybe the second part, uh, from what I've heard, is one long take, and it was sh- it shot just, in and filmed in dubious circumstances when people, when the actors were yeah, actually the, you know compromised in terms of the way that he's revealed him. It, it's you know allegations of abuse over um, m- multiple films now means that. Yeah, we really shouldn't be lending him our support, I suppose. But yeah, I, um, I think it's more about the be, way the films are shot than the actual that. product. To be honest, sorry, I think it's more more about the dubiousness and the ethical boundaries around the way the films have been yeah, shot, no, rather than I the actual final to, product. To be right, I don't mean to dispute that, but now that the film does exist and is an object, without wanting to necessarily say that Abdelatif Kashish should get funding anymore. Um, it does, to me, sound interesting. The idea of a film that's almost entirely dancing and three hours spent in one location, well, and it's just—I've just, heard some descriptions that it's just exhausting to watch because there's so much dancing and sweating for hours. To me, yeah. it sounds at least as an experiment that sounds interesting. Yeah. That's the second part. I'm not quite sure, but the first one was was fine. It actually felt like a summer romance film, you know, and and okay. you know, pretty light and breezy. Uh, these group of characters. Right. 
are in each other's lives and they're just trying to figure things out as they go. It's a coming-of-age film. Uh, It's nothing that controversial. It's a film. Mm. That's it. Mm. Interesting. (laughs) Yeah, I saw some people say that as well, that that it's typical, like... Uh, retro European erotica. Um, it's not even that erotic. I don't see why people are making it out to be that erotic. I mean, it lit- uh, mm. at least in the first film, apart from that one one scene, there's nothing in there. And it's a long film. It's a three-hour film that I'm talking about. The first part is also yeah. not, that, not that short. So, you know. Right. I'm curious to see it. So, but anyway, moving along, how top film discussions... Yeah, should we do um, number one, Parasite, Pain and Glory, both tied for 53? Wow. I'm um, so happy interestingly, with that tie. Yeah, I mean, I, that's, I that's a, deserved, a deserved tie if there ever was one. I mean, this wasn't planned, but I'm sure if this was in some way, was, you know, uh, planned by the universe, yeah. and this was conspired, then I would gladly take part in this conspiracy. Yeah. yeah looking at looking at the stats, um, it's Parasite's the film in all of our top fives. But Pain and Glory, and it is, you know, all two of our top twos, as is Portrait of Lady on Fire. They're mm. such, it, it, it's, I, I, they're both great. They're both great. I would rewatch, I will rewatch both over the, many times, I believe, over the course of my life. Um, I'm so glad they're both out there for what they both represent. I, I'm, yeah, I, I do. Mean, Antonio Banderas yeah. clearly gave the best acting performance of last year, and he got no recognition for it. That That is, that is, that is. He got an Academy that, Award that's a fact. Well, a nomination. Who really remembers that? But still, it was it was really nice after that film scene just slipped through the cracks that they recognized him, at least to, to that extent. I agree, it was a beautiful performance. There was so much subtlety and pain, um, but it's not a histrionic character. It's not. Um, it's not. Typically, the Oscars go for histrionic performances. They didn't with Brad Pitt, um, but I think that's but, because... But it's interesting because on paper... Superhero. On paper, and with the amount of elements that this character has, this could have easily been a histrionic performance because there is so much potential for dramatization of this character. But no, yeah, that's right. The way the character plays it, even in the most kind of nonsensical moments, when you know he gets high and he's having all these visions, and there are some really fun comedic moments. There's never a point that you feel that he's going overboard, which is really interesting. And Mm. I I think, yeah, it's. I know, there's something I, I about just, Almodovar and Banderas coming together, which is just magic. I mean, they just work so well together. It's just, it's great. Yeah, the, the, mm-hmm. there's, there's so much to draw about this relationship. It's with the actor who he was estranged with for so long. Um, the romance that we encounter later in the film. Um, I like, I'm not going to ruin the ending or the very final scene. It's such a purely elegant statement on what I think not just cinema but art means to fill to artists moreover and how we can express ourselves through it and they can favor and portray uh, such someone's life even with something as so evocatively achieved as, as pen glory you still can't quite necessarily get around to understand and that's and that may seem it's kind of true but that's actually a beautiful message that Mm. life can um present um that beauty that film can't but at the same time film can be such a effective um mirror and way of distilling it and i love that i I adore that um 
three of my three of the films top ten achieved that, and I adore how the button the film concludes on it. It will, it will. Um, beautiful. Just, beautiful. Just, just, uh, yeah. I mean, that, and that, that which whole... is commentary on the film itself. It, it, it's yeah. a very simple way of expressing a very deep idea. And I, th- I but, think and it's a, twist, a lot of ours has been trying for this. Try and trick the audience. It's, it's and it's yeah. not just a twist. You know, it 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 is a kind of it's a meta commentary on the nature of this film and the nature of all film storytelling. At the same time that it's a reveal. Yeah, I mean, Almodovar has been trying for this reveal kind of narrative in the last past few films, and I think in this one he's really cracked it. But also that whole mm-hmm. sequence where you're talking about when he meets his uh, past lover. It's such. A beautiful, tender moment, which I wasn't expecting when it came, because it comes so such so by it surprise. Was very, very real. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's not even by design. I mean, it's it's almost such a happen chance kind of a thing that happens in the film, and it takes on such uh, profound proportions and meaning when it does happen, and it's such a beautiful underplayed sequence. And just for that alone, that that was my mm-hmm. Oscar highlight, Oscar bait demo reel if there was one that was that that, that scene because that was beautiful mm. it just stays with you the so pain and glory the other number one is parasite um i rewatched it all of what more is there to say about parasite yeah what what yeah, can we, we add we covered it all did we had a two-hour discussion on parasite to, to be honest <laughs> yeah we, we've covered yeah. it yeah it, we've done it there's, um, there's nothing we can all, add all, to it. I'll, I'll note a couple on i'll note a couple things just on rewatch there are minor payoffs that, as Chris alluded to, I know he's seen it twice, um, that do reward a repeat watching. I still appreciate there's a sequence, um, one of the more understated sequences in a diner where they allude, as they do a few other times, to the family's um, ability to either see things through or... Um, uh, hold down a gig or as, as as the film frames it um there's a lot of moments in this film where you might think what why wouldn't the character just do this but they're very, bong is very very careful at um expressing the uh modes and understandings and frame of mind at which the family are working at so when they don't do things that you would consider um commonplace or why why would you go about it this way it makes sense because the 10 characters in the film are very well established. Um, another thing I really liked about it, it's a small thing, but we've talked on this show about how no one really works mobile phones and cellular technology into narratives. Certainly the presence of a cell phone and video phone is a big thing of this, but more than that... Bong used it really well. That, oh, he used it exceptionally well. But, but even more so, some horror films and else is where they have, there's a scene where, they have, where something revolves around establishing there's no reception, we don't have reception. The converse of this is that there's a scene where they establish that all the problems happen because they do have reception, and otherwise the events would not have transpired if they did. It's a nice little twist on an old trope, and I like that. And mm. yeah, that's Parasite. Um, it's going to be a favorite for a long time. I think, I think we've covered it. It seems yeah. like it. We've covered it. Yeah, um, just to recap, um, Parasite and Pain and Glory tied for number one, Marriage Choice number two, Nightingale Portrait, third, um, our top picks that we have 
had you know, with Philip Hawke, Knives Out, The Irishman, The Farewell, and The Unknown Saint. The Unknown um, Saint which deserves just... more love, by the way. Yeah. How that movie, um... take... yeah, hopefully it eventually comes to cinemas in the US when, when things finally settle down, if things are, will finally settle down. Glenn, could you run through the top 10 again? Because there are moments when you cut out when you're listening at the top 10, so it'd be nice for people to hear them again. Sure, I'll I'll, I'll I'll hit them again. So number one, title number one is Parasite and Pain and Glory. Number two is Marriage Story. Title number three is Nightingale and Portrait Lady on Fire. And then uh, the top 10 is Bill Street Could Talk, Knives Out, The Irishman, The Farewell, and The Unknown Saint, a film which does not mock the characters who are pathetic and treats with everyone a huge amount of empathy and sets up a great crime scenario around a relatively low-key um, facility, which is like, very, very Looney Tunes-esque. It's, it's very actually, simple. Yeah, it's very very simple story, but uh, told extremely well, structured really well. It's believably sketched characters, and it's very funny. It's very Aki Korosmaki-esque, actually, both in the aesthetics and the drollness of it. And also in the way that kind of silly things can happen, um, as Glenn says, sometimes Looney Tunes-esque within this very simple, um, restrained kind of narrative framework. I really recommend it. I recommend you get out. Um, and there's, just a note of a top 10, there's five Sydney Film Festival premieres, there's one Myth premiere, there's two Netflix films, and the others were Knives Out and If Beale Street Could Talk. Um, yeah, uh, both regular cinematic releases. Pretty much. Yeah. Um, should we talk about some of our... What's seeking out and streaming and renting? Yes. Uh, should we talk about uh, some of our personal favorites that have, we've missed out, which did not overlap? Virus. We were to pick up we've one. got to hear if we're not talking about virus here. Yes. Yeah. So virus is, is one that I picked, not only because it was actually one of the best films, but I feel it is very, the parallels from virus and what's happening right now are just too real to ignore. Virus is based on the 2018 Nipah outbreak in Kerala that happened, which was actually a very deadly virus, uh, which was infecting the population with almost a 20% mortality rate. Uh, it is uh, fascinating with how it... I mean, it's easy to compare this with Contagion, but it's less dramatic than this. <laughs> it is not as uh, Hollywood-esque in its uh, treatment. It's, it's so much To be more... honest... Contagion yeah. is pretty realistic. It is. Okay, uh, all right. Oh, well, okay, hold on, hold on a second. As, as, <laughs> as we're making this claim, I think... All right. <laughs> Contagion, I haven't, seen, I haven't seen this that came out. Um, I saw it in cinemas on its release. Contagion presents a scenario and the procedural way a government could go about this. In terms of being realistic, I think it's concerning to me that a lot of people are seeking out this film. It's number two on streaming worldwide after the Harry Potter series. It's... It's it, it, the nature of the pandemic. There is entirely different. It's entirely different to from this what one. is going on now. Yes. As yeah. is the virus that spreads the MEV one virus in that film. Um, I like uh, separate to the current context. If you asked me a year ago what I thought of Contagion, I would have told you, and I, I can say the same thing now. I like. I think it's a relatively competent '70s style disaster film with a good ensemble cast. It has a lot of issues. It has such an antiquated view on how it treats the internet and bloggers, which was even out of day in 2009. It's a big issue for me that a film had Although a virus actually, which started in Hong Kong entirely 
focuses on Americans. Yes, Chris? The thing about the bloggers, like I also haven't seen the film since it came out, but I remember pretty well. <laughs> Hasn't that, the, the medium has shifted, but online conspiracy theorists have only really doubled. having a yeah. lot of sway. I actually think Contagion was prophetic in that regard. It just, you know, the, the thing of like, don't trust the bloggers, you know, yeah, is antiquated, but if you switch that to Alex Jones or the more insidious, because they're, you know, less high profile, um, of him that have overwhelmed social media and are, are telling people all sorts of nonsense about this virus. Um, Did you just say memes? Any other world event. Uh, I think I think Contagion was actually onto something about the way that lies spread on the internet in times of crisis. Look at the bushfire conspiracy theories, and look at the Wuhan bioweapon conspiracy theories going around now as well. I would I would point to though the, the, the look at the design of the material the guy was putting out. Like he was even, and it's just even the 2009 was just so far beyond what design was capable. Love the guy is literally putting flyers on cars in order to raise awareness of what he's doing. Um, yeah, that's that Twitter is this. Oh, he's on Twitter. There's an awful scene where it could have been fired, they'd done it five years earlier. But there's a scene where he's walking out of his editor's office and saying, Oh, it's all about the internet. And um, and there's only and they, they treat it as if there's only a few bloggers and it's this up and coming thing, whereas yeah, everyone's still doing print media. But um, I think but the I, principle I do, of his I mean, the good thing about virus is that the film is actually not about the virus. It's actually mostly about uh, using the virus as a catalyst to see how human beings react when they're put in extreme situations. And actually, it's mostly mm. a study about the stupidity of human beings, essentially. Well, right. Interesting. Sorry, what was Glenn just saying about um, the uh, with, Jude Law oh, character? Just, uh, with the Jude Law character, he... I, I think I don't want to. Okay, I, I'm going to talk about the film seems broadly, and I guess it constitutes minor spoilers. But the film depicts a circumstance where, um, blog. I, I don't. I don't feel it treats how mass hysteria could arise out of that sort of circumstance and that sort of information in a way that was necessarily as uh, relevant to 2009 or now. However, I do think on broad points, it, I can't really talk without going into spoilers, but at broad points, it does voice concerns, Chris has said, for these, the sorts of people who are out there and are more sophisticated, which <laughs> is an important thing. The Jude Law character was sophisticated. He was treated as a scrappy, oh, look, even this idiot can come up and do this. Whereas now the concern, as Chris says, that people at least appear more outwardly professional and that mm. is um, a concern of certainly in terms of uh, getting people bored with the very bad conspiracies, for instance, about COVID-19. Um, another thing that annoyed me about it was how, uh, I guess uh, this is as a particular circumstance, it could happen, and I appreciate it. it's an American film with a predominant American cast, but it annoyed me that a, a virus that started in Southeast Asia, Patient Zero was an American, and the predominant focus was America, and Americans, yeah. it didn't have I agree. You're right. folks that would have liked the move, the movie. Um, and the other thing, and oh god, but, I but that's so typical of Americans uh, anyway really, that they find a way to make it about themselves in the most unlikeliest situations. So you know, it's not it's not that surprising. Um, I mean, like why the, is, the film does cover other jurisdictions? It does, but not to the extent. Why is the Invisible Man about Americans 
instead of being about Australians. Filmed in Sydney with, by an Australian director. You know, it's a shame that that's cor- that's correct. Actually, yeah, yeah, it's a shame that this movie being about Australians would make it less commercially viable especially, in the United especially States. Especially because we currently, I mean, with Rosie Batty and the domestic violence uh, uh, sort of issues that we're trying to bring up to the national scale, this would have actually fit really well in the national narrative if we could have used that kind of mm-hmm. perspective. But they, they what? They want to sell to American audience. That's it. I know, and exactly. They know but that the American audiences, is, as with many other audiences, want to see films about themselves. I get it. So do we as Australians. But and this was a universal enough... We don't enough, see many films about ourselves. But this honestly. was a universal enough story that could have been as much about Australia, as much about America, actually. Because The Invisible Man is not necessarily an American film. It's not necessarily an American context. It actually is a universal enough thing that could have worked yeah, easier for Australia than anyone else. I'm just saying it's sad that... It, it's considered so other, like yeah. if, the, if this movie right. was about Australians. You could understand their accents, you know, just you fairly could. neutral Australian-sounding people. It's a shame that oh, that with a big know, U.S. studio Mad backing Max it, this was double back in the day. It is. I know that, that was forty I, I know, I know, I know. But uh, fair, fair, yeah, fair. Honestly, I do wish it was. I do wish Invisible Man had been set here, as, I mean, as with Upgrade. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I wouldn't um, want both of you guys to see Virus. It's on Amazon Prime. So, it's so how is Virus different from Contagion? I think, uh, I think one, of the, one of the biggest things about Virus and the, yeah. the way it sort of subverts a lot of those expectations is, is around what you expect to be the natural response of human beings in that sort of situation is not what the film focuses on. It is, it is not necessarily... It's not set up as a medical thriller as Contagion is. It is not necessarily about, you know, how the hysteria is spreading. It's mostly about how humanity can be preserved in the most unlikeliest of circumstances. So it is trying to tell mm. you the ordinary stories and the extraordinary kind of things that which get lost. So it is, and actually it is the ordinary acts of boring, doing the right thing in the most unsexy of ways, which actually saves the day in the end, which is what is the film essentially trying to get to. So, you know... And most mm-hmm. of the disaster films actually try to make it, you know, a great deal of heroic acts, which end up saving the day. But actually, it is doing the right thing day in and day out in the most smallest of ways, which eventually curb the eventual statistical outbreak in that sense. And it is trying to get that point across in, you know, which a lot of movies kind of miss the point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, th- th- this sounds like a film that I'd rather watch right now than Contagion, which oh, yeah. I would, well, does have uh, good attributes. Ironically, it's a more hopeful uh, film than we realize. Both from a perspective, both from a perspective of this is not the type of depressing film I want to watch right now, but this is not reflective of the current environment, even though people think it is. Seeking another one. And just a, a final point on Contagion there's this. this, is, this is, okay, so the Gwyneth Paltrow character dies in the opening scenes. The, whole thing spoilers claim that she's and the film wants you to feel sorry for her but they want you to feel more sorry <laughs> it's it's, a, it's the open it's the open, first 10 minutes <laughs> and the, the film wants you to feel more sorry for a good guy dad matt damon so to do that they have her having an affair and yes. it's just this retrograde misogynist why do this and then they have so she dies and then i think oh so the guy she was having an affair with dies so we want you we want you to feel sorry yeah, that's her, what you get but we cheating. want you to focus on that all american matt damon yeah so it's come on you don't need to put this in there it's it was oh so antiquated no um, I, I would definitely recommend I did not like that um, go check out virus you know and and yeah, yeah. we'll watch it well yeah. you know in our quarantine um, yeah so you know the uh do, do, uh, if 
there was something I wanted to bring up earlier, now that we're by the look of it done uh, with our discussion of the top list of the year, just because it's so funny to me. Um, Justin Chang, the Variety critic, tweeted um, on the news from a few days ago of Khan saying business as usual will definitely be holding our festival in May. Um, he said <laughs> Khan, Khan will be announcing, and Justin Chang said this, uh, we'll be announcing in a new sidebar quarantine de realizeta. He's riffing on the Kinzan de realizeta, the director's Fortnite. Um, but yeah, how the hell can Khan go ahead? Who are they kidding? Wow. Conde? Oh, Conde. The quarantine no. de realizeta. Director's well, quarantine. Okay. In terms of festivals doing business, i.e., distributing films and making deals, a lot of festivals are setting up virtual places for filmmakers to do this. This is good. So the bad business can go on. In terms of the awards of festivals, a lot of festivals, I think Tribeca is one of them, has set up, has allowed a jury to watch films online and still award films, saying films get their prestige. That is a good thing. The other aspect of it is obviously the watching aspect for um, Khan is obviously an industry festival, but films like S Festival others are open to the public. We, we want a situation, we may have a situation where festivals, obviously the security aspect with um, downloading and piracy, but more festivals, more platforms may just have to look to go online if we get films out yeah. there in the immediate term. There are some film, there are some filmmakers who even today, uh, but prior, sorry, prior to the, the events of the past couple of months, would be happy to just release their films because it's more important that people see their films, see their, what they've produced, than get necessarily money for it. There's going to be more filmmakers like that now, knowing that they don't have as many avenues to get their films out. Well, so uh, there will that, be more filmmakers releasing their content, sorry, content material for streaming and else. I think, let's assume that Venice goes ahead and it programs a lot of films that Khan would have played. Um, that We don't know that Venice will go ahead, but assuming it does, then the films that would have played in Venice got to go somewhere. They might go to Berlin. And then the films that might have gone to Berlin, if things are on a normal schedule, might go to Cannes along with some new ones. Um, I think, you know, if they cancel the festival, people are fine to sit on these films. I think I think a slot to show them should pop up in the future. As, you know, I don't think it's the end of the world if Cannes gets canceled for one year. I think they're just being stubborn. I mean, yeah, it's, if it's literally Those the end of the world, then yeah. No, it's not. But yeah, we'll see. <laughs> um, no, you're right. Khan should go online only, but they're very conservative. Um, I think that it's you know we're going to have the Khan Film Festival in this big um, Palais de, de Festival, huge auditorium, or we're not going to do a festival at all. Because remember, these are the guys who still are in an ideological war with Netflix. Yeah, and remember, um, the Khan hasn't been cancelled since '68, since civil unrest in France, and. Mm -hmm. Now they don't. They don't want. They don't want to do it. So we may have an update for this next week. I'm sure we'll have many more updates um, as we continue to continue to um, release episodes. Uh, yeah, um, it's it's a it's a evolving beast. It's a so, great time. No one knows what's yeah, around the corner. It's great time. Yeah. Um, pick a look. Let us look, seriously reach out. Tell us what you want us to cover. Well, yeah, tell us how you're feeling. I mean, hey, you'll, you'll be good. Let's actually, I know I said this last time, but we had a bit of a crazy week. Yeah. So let's, let's actually make social media for next time. Yeah. Yeah. So that people can actually reach out and to us. And you know what? Like, 
And, and if it's like, is Godfather 1 verse 2, fine. But like, surprise us with something different or out of left field. Like, we're, we're, we're good for it. Just, we'll let you know our yeah, social media we, 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 on the next episode yeah. on podcast. Yeah. Yes. Um, so, yeah, uh, thanks for tuning in. Um, and stay safe. This has been Glenn Falkenstein, Chris Evans, and Virat Nehru. Enjoy yeah. movies, enjoy each other's company, um, however you're doing it. Chris and I, uh, I guess we're chatting this privately, but and we, we, we're planning, it. neither of us has seen Robocop 2, so we're going to put it on Stan and Sky because we watch it, because it's the type of film you want to watch with someone. Yeah. 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 Uh, did you have exactly. Robocop 2 viewing party? Bryce invited if he wants to join. Yeah, but I feel like Bryce, you, could, you got a... Is this a viewing party? Robocop 2? Apparently, It's a kid's yeah, movie, Virat. Robocop 2 is a kid's movie. You'll... When are we doing it? There's no violence. Sure. It's, it's on the cards. What? Oh, I'm not sure. Just, just around. Yeah, why not? I mean, yeah. Good. Yeah. Sure. Um, <laughs> I think there's going to be more and more of these. I'm, I, yeah, it's like having. It, it's a nice way also, to do it. Also, well. I, I and think I'll be tuning in before we end. I think I should, I should point out Glenn has got this blurry background for this past one hour where he feels like. He's still like, it was not intentional. Yeah. But it's like, oh, I'm such a film critic because I need to have this bouquet effect. Yeah, sort of yeah, like, yeah. I'm an artist. <laughs> you know, I'm portrait, artist. portrait of an artist yeah. on fire kind I'm, of thing. I'm an artist. I, def- I, I like. Yeah. But, 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 but Roman picture, is picture of an artist of me, as a young like man. I'm Mac Lowry. So, mm-hmm. you know, you don't, you, don't, you, don't, you don't want to see just other pictures of me just sitting and confusing because all my. Oh, Mac Lowry. That's such a good bad kind of stationary. Oh, you've got all these great pictures of yourself. <laughs> this is what we've oh come yeah, to. like every time I save his life, he he we get a new photo and <laughs> going. God, remember when Bad Boys was good? Yeah. Okay, you you know what I say. This is such a tangent. I love the title sequence of Bad Boys because Michael Bay had no money to do it, so all he did was get drone shots of LA, speed it up, put an amazing rock soundtrack, and put a yellow tint on it. And it looks so good. It's the famous shot of the plane flying over the Yankee sign. Yeah, it it doesn't cost a lot to do this, but he did it. He's Michael Bay. So, God, when he was working with a limited budget, the stuff that guy could do. He still has a lot of talent. I watched, uh, I sort of half-watched it, as you should, um, well, at someone's house the other day. Um, The, what's it called? The something, Six six Underground. Okay, so it's a bad movie, right? It's a yeah. bad movie, and it's definitely gross in the way that you expect of a Michael Bay movie in terms of um, the, the people that it, it denigrates and the ways the, the bad taste humor in it. Um, and it definitely goes on and becomes bad. But the opening sequence, despite containing all of these elements, is so well put together. Like it, oh, yeah. he, he has some real talent for making action and for making just visual spectacle. The, the best scene with on that movie is going from the lobby of the hotel, sorry, up from uh, Mike's apartment, and then just around the block. And all happens is uh, Marcus jumps in a car. They run through a modeling studio. It's a foot chase. This is great low angle shot as they run down a white hallway, and it all takes place on like one block. But it's mm-hmm. got all the signatures and hallmarks of all the stuff Michael Bay would go on to do when you could afford to blow up trucks of Budweiser and smash giant machines together. We're talking about Bad Boys 1 for the record now. <laughs> yes. Yeah. All right. Yeah.
Um, I see on, that, on that note, because we had the bad oh, boys. Uh, yeah. Um, know, it's bad boys fighting life. Ride or die. Listen or die. Listen. Yeah, guys. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, thanks for tuning in. We'll be back. Um, have a I hope we'll good be night. Back. Enjoy yeah. movies. On and... the note of I'll be back, um, did you guys, I know like, we keep saying we'll end and then not. Did you guys <laughs> see the video of Ani with his pony and his, his miniature yes. horse and his miniature donkey? <laughs> Pete, do, do, that, it's time I, to stay inside. <laughs> don't, go, don't go to restaurant. Don't go to movies. We just have a good time inside here with our plant-based food. <laughs> well, 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 Chris one-upped Ani just now by bringing his adorable puppy. And uh, now it makes me just want some giant cuddly animal here. We're actually talking about any dog. Um, this giant dogs cuddly animal. Looks great. Oh, I'm thinking of dogs. <laughs> it makes me happy. I love Stay dogs. Happy, guys. Stay I love dogs Stay and happy. I love dogs. Great film and I love dogs. Must love dogs. Yeah. So, good night. Good night. Bye. Bye.